at. We're into the seventh, um, the seventh letter of this uh, series of letters, the series of seven letters. Uh, and, and I'm tempted to just kind of walk through all the principles that we've walked through each week. Uh, we don't have time for that, but I, I, they're listed on the version event. If you happen to follow that, you can go look at them and see them. Uh, but I will post them on Realm this week. I, I want us to hear from the Lord, from our Savior who has told his church what is commendable, and he's shown and spoken to his church about what's unacceptable, and I want us to be able to measure ourselves in light of that. So, so not just because just we're finishing this seven letters today, we're not done with Revelation, but I also don't want us to think that we're moving on from what the Lord has to say to his church. This is so important for us to hear these things, uh, and, and, and so I, I just want us to be mindful of them. Today, our study in the letter to the church at Laodicea, it is a church that of the seven churches, probably of them all, looks the most like the society or the culture that it resides in. It it becomes clear when Jesus addresses this church, he highlights things that are so specific to that city. And he did that in other in other places, but they weren't so prominent in what was going on in the church. They were there, there were hints to it in the other letters, but it wasn't so prominent and so pointed about the health of the church and how closely it mirrored the society it lived in. Um, but we see that it's one of two churches that Jesus gives no commendation to. So it's, it's like another church in that it's, it's um, <laughs> Jesus doesn't have anything really good to say about them. So it's, it's heavy, and it's one of two churches that he actually is, for lack of a better word, threatening or at least proposing. If they don't do something, they're going to be done. He's going to, he's going to rid himself of that problem. He's going to spit them out is the way he says it to this church. To the church in Ephesus, he said, I'm going to remove your lampstand. They're going to cease to be a church. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this. We'll, I'll hit on it again as we turn to it. That sets it up as a very heavy Letter. If you know anything about the seven letters, you recognize Laodicea is a heavy letter. But it is so filled with hope. It, it, in fact, it, it makes me, it's as, as dark as it is, as heavy as it is, there is so much light here. So let's not miss that as we, as we dig into it. So Revelation chapter 3, again in verse 14, we'll read through 22, we'll pray, and then we will dig in. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would would that you were rather cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Well, Father, 
Help us today hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. That the amen, the faithful and true witness, the one who is, um, well, the, the yes to every one of your promises, the fulfillment of every one of your promises, the one that we can say, I agree and I stake my trust in him. These words that he's spoken, Father, would, would, would we hear the warning, heed it, the warning as it applies to each of us individually? but then even seek to ensure that we do not become what Laodicea is. I pray, Father, for this church that, that as we kind of draw this, this series or this part of the series to, to, together to an end, I pray that we wouldn't move on, that we would learn from these churches, that we would grow in the areas that, that we need to grow, that we would be a people who hear what your Spirit has to say to the churches. So help us today. Spirit, be with us, near us on us, in us, anoint these words that they might move past eardrums to hearts and that they might transform us and conform us to the likeness of our Savior. Would you work today, meet us today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The principle that we're going to see fleshed out through this passage is this. If our lives are to be anything more than lukewarm lies... We must be confronted by the truth of the Lord's word and turn to Jesus alone for what we lack. If our lives are to be anything more than lukewarm lies, we must be confronted by the truth of the Lord's word and turn to Jesus alone for what we lack. The default position of this world that we live in is deception. It's deceived. It's, it's deceived, it's deceiving others, it's promoting the lies of others, it's, it's, it's ruled by lies. Like the power we saw, the, the issue of power, the deficit of power that this world resides under, the struggle for power that this world now has, like that what we saw with Philadelphia, this issue of being deceived, deceiving others and, and uh, promoting the, the deception of others, goes all the way back to the garden. It's been here since Adam and Eve. When Satan, who is the father of all lies, a liar and the father of all lies, stepped into the garden and began to deceive Adam and Eve. And Eve, Paul tells us, Eve is deceived and Adam just doesn't confront the lie with the truth. He sits there silent, lets his wife eat and then eats with her rather than speaking truth against the lie. And from that time, from that time till now, From that time to the point that we arrive at this church in Laodicea, from that time till then, the father of lies, a liar and the father of lies, Satan, has had the dominion in this world that we were created for. He has ruled with his lies. He has deceived and he's continuing to deceive. And as a result of his deception, he is causing us to live deceived lives. This remains true. For the church in Laodicea, they are, they are believing their own lies. They're so deceived that they've begun to believe their own lies, that they can stand on their own, that they, that they aren't what they really are. Jesus confronts them with his truth. Because of the lies that they believe, their lives are lukewarm, completely repulsive to Jesus. I'm going to spit you out. The idea is of vomiting. It's not just, oh, that doesn't taste good, spit it out. It is spewing. It's a vomiting. It's a, it's a repulsion that, that sprays it, like spews it, right? Their lives are lukewarm lies. 
because their lives are based on everything but the truth. And it continues today. Just think about it. We devote ourselves to, to lies in the pursuit of happiness. If we just attain this thing, and, and, and there's, a, there's a blank there, right? Like you, we all fill that blank in. If I just attain this, fill in the blank. We all fill it in with different things. If I just attain this position in my business, if I just attain this position in my work, if I just attain this position in my relationships, if I just attain this thing, we think we can buy our happiness we think we can, we can receive it from others. If I just get the right set of relationships around me, you know, I rid myself, you see this all over Facebook, if I just rid myself of toxic, toxic people, then my life will be happy. Where are you going to go that toxic people aren't? Where are you going to go that you aren't? Because left to ourselves, we might be some of the toxic people. Right? We, we try to muscle our way into happiness. I'm just going to make it. I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm going I'm to be happy. <laughs> I've never seen anybody that looks happy like that, right? Never seen anybody happy that's just making it. I'm just going to be happy. Nah, it doesn't work. We, we kid ourselves as we pursue passions that are more self-exalting than, than actually loving. You know, as, as, we, as we virtue signal and, 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 and humble brag all over our social media feeds to let people know just how selfless we are in the pursuit of likes and shares and comments of affirmation. You're so good. Oh, it's not really about me. What if your post doesn't get a like or a share or a vote of affirmation? Oh, better give another one. We pursue lies as we devote ourselves to false gods. Across history, this has been demonstrated by the worship of idols and statues, right? Like there's, I think I've shared this with you guys. My first trip into China, walking to the top of a mountain, walking into a Buddhist temple, and there's a man teaching his son to, the, the process of going and lighting the incense and stepping back and bowing and praying to a statue. It's not quite as prominent in, in our world, in our, in our society today. It doesn't happen here. We're not, we're not believing in or pursuing the false gods of mythology like the Roman gods and the, and the Greek gods. But we are pursuing idols of the heart all the time. John Calvin's the one that said it. And this isn't that modern. I mean, John Calvin's been dead a few years. That our hearts are idol factories, right? We are, we are constantly exalting something to devote ourselves to, to, to pursue and, and seek our happiness in and seek our purpose in and, and give us identity. Instead of the God who created us and says all that stuff is found in him. Unfortunately, we can see these things as prominent in the American church. Well, let's, let's, not, let's not push it out there too far. We can see this as prominent in our lives as well. In many ways, we reflect the culture we live in. I was thinking about it as I was sitting in singing is, I mean, we're a kind of laid back, casual church. We've kind of developed a culture, right? We've kind of, as, as we're sitting there singing, I'm thinking, you know, we're pretty, we, we love the Lord, but we have just begun to embody this, this casual, 
culture. That's just because that's what we tend to do. That's what people tend to do. I'm not saying anything negative, positive about them. I'm just saying, I, I recognize, and as I'm thinking about, that's just what we tend to do. If you come in here wearing a suit and a tie, you'll, you'll stick out, right? To dress up, I know it happens when I, periodically when I dress up. People are like, oh, what's going on? One time on April Fool's, it happened to be that Sunday was an April Fool's Day, and I wore a tie just so I could crack a joke and say that I had a job interview after this. I was going to go to another church. And the people that were, that were here, you, for those of you that remember, I think you know better, but the people that were visiting were like, what's he talking about? And I was like, April Fool's is not really doing that. But it sticks out. It, it stands out. We tend to not want to stand out in certain ways. And so we tend to begin to just kind of adopt the culture. We just kind of Content, begin to reflect it, and it happens in our churches. John Stott makes this point in his, in his book on these seven letters. He writes, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church at the beginning of the 21st century. Now, he's not just speaking about our church or the American church. He's talking about the church of the 21st century. Perhaps none of these seven letters is more appropriate to the church at the beginning of the 21st century than this. It describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Now, there's a school of thought that looks at these letters as if that, that each of these letters represent a different time period. And if we're not careful and we hear his words, we're going to think, oh, well, that's what he means. That, that Laodicea represents the time period of the church that we... But that's not at all what he's intending to say, nor do I think that he thinks that, although that is a school of thought. It is one of the ways that people interpret these churches is that they each represent different stages of church history, and we happen to be in the stage of church history that mirrors Laodicea. I don't think that's true. I think the letters show us that these are seven real churches that, represent, uh, that, that, that are representative of the whole church, of all of church history. That each are wrestling with, with struggles and things that we're going to face and deal with until Jesus comes back. Not at particular times in that, in that period. But I think that Stott may be on to something. That the, that the broader church culture that we're going to find. That in the broader church culture we're going to find in America. That there are many ways in which American churches have begun to reflect the, the society. The culture we live in. The, the context in which we minister in. more than the Savior who saved us. So just think about this. In the last, uh, it, it really started in the 70s, the church growth movement starts in the 70s, in which churches would seek to go into the world and ask the world what kind of church they wanted. So it was a big practice to go into the neighborhoods around where they were going to start a church and, and survey those people. Christian, non-Christian, it didn't matter. What kind of church do you want to go to? As a misunderstanding of church altogether because church isn't an event or a location that you're supposed to draw. So, so, so it, it is a people of God, right? Like fundamentally at the very heart of that is a misunderstanding about church. But they're trying to put on an event that they can draw people into. Believing that if they just draw a big enough crowd that they are going to be successful in making disciples. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to big church ministry. I don't want you to hear that. I'm not opposed to attractional ministry. I'm, I, what I'm opposed to is attractional ministry for, just for the sake of gathering a crowd. If you don't have the content of the gospel, 
that, that feeds the attraction and that is behind the attraction that actually draws people to the Savior, then you might as well be a show in Branson. Right? And that's many, many of the, the many people in the church growth movement gave in more into drawing a crowd than they were committed to making disciples. They looked a lot more like a show you could go into in Branson, a, a, a sporting event that's all about the I mean, you can go to church like you want to go to Walmart. Go buy what you want, go home, and never be bothered again. It doesn't look a lot different, different than the world we live in. In an age that demands politically correct language, right? It deems the calling of sin sinful. deems that as an act of hate or violence. We have begun to be led to believe that calling sin sinful, well, we just don't do that. We don't want to be offensive. We don't, and, and, and hear me, brother, sister, hear me. I don't want to be offensive just because I'm a jerk. I want to be likable. I want people to know me. I want to be appreciated. I, I'm, I'm like everybody else. But I also don't want to diminish the truth so that people will continue to like me. Nor do I want our church to be liked at the expense of speaking truth. Unfortunately, the overreaction to this is a whole segment of Christianity in circles that just wants to walk around and beat people with the hammer of truth without extending the comfort of grace. So we got these two voices in the church now that war against one another and are doing no good to the culture we live in. But Jesus came with both truth and grace. He spoke truth in love. And you know how that mirrors the rest of the culture we live in? Have you paid any attention to the political fights or the, the YouTube wars, the battles that go on between thought about left and right? And can we be a people who stand right here in the middle, not looking a third way, not trying to find balance, standing solidly upon the rock and truth of the gospel that says, yes, sin is sinful and it condemns people to hell, but the hope is that Jesus came and died on that cross for our sin and any who believe in him, any who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I, I have a feeling that those on, this, on the right side of this argument that are out, going out there beating people of truth would point at Laodicea and throw them out already. That's not what Jesus did, is it? But he also didn't go to Laodicea and say, hey, oh, bless your hearts. Like, we don't need to worry about your sin. Let's just, let's just move on. Just trust in me. That's a both and. Yes, you're sinful people, but I am the solution. Somewhere along the way, we decided that to present the gospel to someone, we needed to befriend them. Like we were looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And I actually, I feel bad about this. It was true, but I'm just confessing just some of my own stuff, right? Like I'm, I cracked a joke with somebody the other day about going out and standing on a soapbox and just presenting the gospel as if there's something wrong with that. Unfortunately, I think oftentimes in our culture that's abused But is that any less valuable than relationship evangelism? Like seeking to be a friend to someone in, in order to bear witness to them long term and 
to speak truth into lies and confront sin but still show that there's a Savior? So I, I don't think there's actually anything wrong with the re- relational evangelism. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. My problem is oftentimes I want to value the relationship over the evangelism piece. And I begin to be scared I'm going to lose a relationship if I evangelize. How is that any different than anybody else in the world that does what they do in order not to lose a friend? So like, like the letter to Sardis, and I think it's there in, in other letters as well, I don't think that this church in Laodicea is as representative of our church as some of the others. But I know, I know, as I listed those things, as I kind of walked through them this week and thought about them in light of my own life and in possibly in the light of, of our lives or your lives, I thought, you know, I don't think this is as descriptive as some of the other churches of our church. But to suggest that we don't face these temptations, that we don't need to hear this warning, or that we don't need to heed and listen to this warning, I think would be misled as well. I think we all need to be reminded of this. If our lives are to be anything more than lukewarm lies, we must be confronted by the truth of the Lord's word and turn to Jesus alone for what we lack. I think the thing that's protected us and continues to protect us as a church so that we just need to hear this warning is that there's so many of us that are so ready to speak truth in grace to one another. And I think that has blessed us and strengthened us and made us able to look a little bit different. But let's not let that go to our heads or allow us to come to a place that we think we don't need anything else. Because that's a lot of what Laodicea looked like. We're going to see this as we walk through these commendations, as we walk through his complaints, as we walk through his call, as we walk through his, his commitment to the church. We're going to see this break out. I've, I've set up a lot of stuff, but I want to show you where we see it happening at. And so we start with Jesus' commendations, as we have for every other church. Jesus' commendations for the church in Laodicea are this. None. There are None. Even, there's not even a glimpse of a good one. Like in Sardis, he was able to, say, able to say at least, hey, there's some of you. I don't think that was a compliment. I think that was actually a statement that just demonstrated how bad off they were. But he couldn't highlight even some of them. Like this has taken on the whole, the whole church is this. There's no good things about these church. Ephesus, the other church that was just about to lose its, its lampstand if they didn't repent, had, had good things. Hey, you got sound doctrine. You, you, are, you, are, you know the word, right? You're committed to the truth, and, and you hate the work that I hate. He even called that out. But you lack love. You have lost any form of love. You're no more than a bunch of angry fundamentalists, and if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Right? Like they're the other church that's, that's being told by Jesus, if you don't repent, you won't be a church. There's nothing good here. But, 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 but hear it again. Hear it again. Jesus is addressing this church, offering his forgiveness their, in response to their repentance. He, he, is, he, is, commit, he is calling, he's going to call them to something. And that's shocking when you think about it. 
You go back out there and think about those, those religious arguments that are happening between people on social media feeds and YouTube. How many of those people are sitting down with one another and saying, repent of your sin? Turn to Jesus alone, right? No, they just cast them out. Don't, don't agree with me about my position on women in the church? Oh, you're a wolf. Get out. You, you, you don't agree with my position about voting Republican because I'm a, I, I stand against abortion? Oh, you're a wolf. Get out. You vote Democrat? You're a wolf. Get out. Man, Jesus approaches them. Speaks truth that is dripping with the lavishness of his grace. Man, I, 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 would, I would long, I would, I would deeply desire that our church would understand that this is what it looks like to be Christ-like. Strong stance for truth, but an extreme understanding of the grace of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Jesus commends the church for nothing. But in the face of nothing to commend, he offers them opportunity. He offers them grace. How shocking is that? <laughs> so I, it's, almost, I, it's hard to even move past it thinking about it. Because at the heart of it, that is the gospel. And you know what? Such were some of we. Su- such were some of us. <laughs> What did Jesus have to commend in your life when he met you where you were? Let me ask you this. What does Jesus have to commend in your life today except the work that he's done? How in the world would we stand up and not extend this to brothers and sisters in Christ who might just be deceived or to a lost world who is definitely deceived? Man, we got to learn this lesson. We'll relearn this lesson and continue to learn this lesson and fight to apply this lesson. Because there was a time that we were no different. Jesus complaints against the church in Laodicea. Well, there's a few. Now, I'm going to summarize them in three. First, they're lukewarm works. I know your works. And rather than listing them out, he just says, oh, yeah, you're lukewarm. I know your works. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're lukewarm. He just says, yeah, you're... You're lukewarm. Now, here's, here's one thing. So, so there's a school of interpretation here that people will run to and say, well, you know, hot is on one end of the spectrum of, of spiritual zealousness, and, and cold is on the other end of spiritual zealousness, and, and lukewarm is right in the middle. So it's kind of like the little Bo Peep or the, uh, whatever, not little Bo Peep. What's that? <laughs> Caleb's like, you got it wrong. That's what happens when I ad lib. <laughs> Who is it? Goldilocks, thank you. It's a Goldilocks idea, right? Where they're just right in the middle, but that's not just right in Jesus' book. He'd rather you just be absolutely dead, right? He doesn't want you just a little bit alive. He'd rather you be absolutely dead or totally spiritually alive. He doesn't want you right in the middle. I don't think that's accurate because he actually commends. He actually says that both cold and hot are good. He shows it, that these are the things that are desirable. I want you this. Jesus doesn't want his church dead, right? He's, he's about to show them that he loves them by disciplining them and reproving them. He doesn't want them dead. 
But here's what I think is the right way to receive this. And this is where I think we begin to see the, 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 the place that they live so pointedly used to show what Jesus longs for them. Laodicea had a lot of things going for it. They were very wealthy. They were a banking center. So there's lots of money in Laodicea. Very, very wealthy. They also were a center of medicine. So like Springfield's kind of the center of medicine. Like there's things you can get done outside of Springfield. But if you're going to have something major done, you're coming to Springfield to one of our hospitals, right? That's just the reality of it. And they, they were known. There was a, there, there was a, a, a a focus on optometry and, and uh, what that looks like in that day and age, I don't know, because I don't think they're wearing around, you know, doing the eye tests and stuff like that. But there was a, a salve that they used there, an ointment that they used there that was known to or thought to restore sight in some cases. But there was a medical center. But for all it had going for it, what it had against it was this. They had no water. There was a nearby river, but it was nasty. It was like it would have been like going to Flint, Michigan and drinking the water there. It was, it was disgusting. So instead, they piped their water in, and archaeologists have actually dug up and found an aqueduct that went from Hierapolis, about five or six miles away, to Laodicea. Hierapolis was known for its hot springs, which people would go to because there was medicinal thought. There was a thought that it was healing for them. They were centered between Hierapolis and Colossae on the other side, which also is kind of almost in the center of these two cities. And Colossae was known for its cold springs. And here's Laodicea. You got no cold water. You got no hot water. Who wants to drink lukewarm water? You make tea, it's hot or cold, right? Like you, you, you drink coffee when it's hot. Now, if you're like me, it sits a while and then it gets cold and you still drink it because you just want coffee. But you don't intentionally make lukewarm coffee, doesn't work. Cold water is refreshing. You know, on a hot day, there's nothing really beats ice cold water as it, as it enters into your body. I mean, there's some days, I, I remember a time in Africa, we were so hot. Oh man, it was so miserable hot. Remember this, Bob? We didn't have any cold water. And we, we accidentally stumbled on a guy that had a gas-powered refrigerator freezer in his little shop. And that first cold drink, it went in. I felt it go all the way down my esophagus and into my belly. And it cooled me off from the inside out. It was so refreshing. It been days since we'd had anything cold to drink. Ah, so good. The hot water is cleansing. It's soothing. It has a purpose. Jesus is saying, your works are worthless. They are being worked in vain. They are useless. They are, not, they are not doing any good work. One theologian noted this. The church in Laodicea was providing neither refreshment for the spiritually weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. Their works were lukewarm. And it was absolutely detestable to Jesus. He wanted to spit them out. Now, not only were their works like this, they, they believed their own lies. They, they had these ideas about themselves that they, they believed. They, they were sold on the idea that, that they were rich. They were sold on the idea that they needed nothing. They were prosperous. They had it all together. How easy is it to think that we got control of something, that we got power over something, that, that we got a little money, we can take care of ourselves. How many of us wake up in the morning thinking, Jesus, provide my daily bread? Probably nobody in this room. 
probably many of us aren't even thankful when we sit down to a meal because we don't recognize how God provided it for us. We just eat it. Man, it was good. They believe their own lies. And it's interesting to me because in Smyrna and in Philadelphia, they were suffering under the lies and the accusations, the false accusations of the synagogue of Satan, the, the Jews that weren't really Jews, right? So this true people of God were suffering under the lies of a, a fake people of God that were really the synagogue of Satan. In Pergamum, the lies were being told from outside the church. So Balaam, like, like Balaam, he was, he was creating trouble outside the church that, that bled its way into the church. And in Thyatira... Thyatira. I found out I was saying, oh, man, sorry, I won't go there. <clears throat> they made fun of me at community group for this, but Thyatira or Thyatira, not Thyra. Anyway, they were dealing with the lies from within. So they'd welcome Jezebel into their midst and she gained influence and with lies began to deceive people and lead them astray. But here in, in Laodicea, the problem is not Jezebel, it's not Balaam, it's not the synagogue of Satan, it's the lies that they're telling themselves and about themselves and trying to make everybody else believe we're rich, we're prosperous, we need nothing. It's reminiscent of the, 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 the parable that Jesus told of the rich man that said, oh, look at all I've done, I've accumulated, I'm just I'm stored up, I'm ready to go, I'm just going to sit down and relax. And Jesus says, today your life is demanded of you. You've got enough to take care of that? They are convinced of their own lies. They say they're rich, prosperous, and need nothing. And Jesus' words are clearly different. Wretched. Like, I, I, wanna, I, don't, I, want, I don't want you in my mouth. I want to spit you out. Pitiable. Oh, you foolish people. Poor. You say you're rich, but you're poor. That's a direct contrast to Smyrna that said they were poor, and he says, yet you are rich. Blind. They think they see. They think they know. They think they've got it figured out. They, they think they're clothed. And another way that, that Jesus is pointing out, and so, so, so they believe they're rich because financially they got it together. They believe they can see and they've got medical things figured out. They got life. We can sustain life. We can keep life. We can make life happen. You're blind. And they're also known in Laodicea for, for Black Willows, one of the other, like, like one of the other cities, that this, this place was known for fine clothing. He says, you are naked. Oh yeah, you're covered up. Thank the Lord we're covered up. But there is nothing our clothes are hiding from him. Our shame is uncovered before him. And they have no idea. They got no clue. They obviously didn't hear Paul's warning to the Romans when he said that we are not to think too highly of ourselves. They thought so highly of themselves. And what they needed more than anything is to be confronted by the truth of our Lord. If their life was going to be anything more than this lukewarm lie that they were telling themselves and telling others, if their life was anything more than, than something that caused our Savior to desire to spit them out, they needed his truth. So he gave it to them. Now, I don't think this deception, though, I don't think it stops at being deceived. I, th I think, I, I think it, it stops 
or it finds its way out. It doesn't stop at the deception it causes. It, 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 it bears itself out in the way that they acted, just like the city around them. So history tells us the story of Laodicea being destroyed by, a, by an earthquake in 60, 60 or 62 AD. I can't remember, and I didn't write it down. Uh, 60 or 62 AD, the, the city is destroyed. Tacitus, a, a Roman politician, a Roman historian, he writes this about them. Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. Think about that. Here's this church that looks so much like the city it resides in, the society it lives in, that it says we need nothing. We got the money. We got the prosperity. We got the good life. We're living it. Look at us. We need nothing else. They look just like the city they lived in. How arrogant is that? See, they'd begun to act towards the Lord the way the city acted towards Rome. It's probably okay if the city acts that way towards Rome. We don't need your money. We got you. We got you. We got this. But as soon as we act that way to the Lord, there's no other hope. So when, it, when, it, when a church begins to reflect the society that they live in, of, of course their works are going to begin to be useless and ineffective. We look just like them. We act just like them. We, we do the same, same things they do. Well, of course the things that we stand for aren't going to make an effect or a dent on our culture. The further we withdraw from them, the the, the less touch points we have with them, the less effective we are. But it doesn't do any good for us either to go out into the world and act just like the rest of them. So if we go out and get drunk on Saturday nights and don't show up to church on Sunday morning, if we run to and prioritize all the things that the world prioritizes, if we seek our happiness and all the things the world seeks our happiness in, if we treat one another like the world treats one another, if we respond to our enemies the same way the world responds to their enemies, if we deal with conflict the same way the world deals with conflict, of course our works are going to be ineffective because we're offering nothing except what the world offers course that's going to be a problem. Of course the church is going to be lukewarm then. But that doesn't just start at our works, does it? It doesn't start at what we're doing. It starts at why we do it and the, and the reasons we do what we do. Because we believe lies. We believe lies like we just assemble a big crowd and we automatically make disciples. Hey, let's assemble the biggest crowd we can and then preach the gospel. Can we figure out how to do that? Like, what, what, let's just dream just a little bit. Let's just dream a little bit. What if we did something that drew this large crowd? That we had to, we had to move out of the building and, and start meeting the, in, the, in the back lot and start preaching over uh, speakers in the open air. Like, because we just didn't have the space in this room anymore. We drew such a big crowd. And then the message we were preaching was, hey, when you get good enough... Jesus will love you. Is that going to do something? It's going to make, make, make a bunch of legalistic, fundamentalistic jerks. What, what if we get them together and, and, we, and we draw that crowd and we say, hey, hey, you know what? Your sin's not important. It's not a big deal. 
Jesus took care of that. You just keep on sinning, but trust in Jesus. What's that going to do? It's not going to produce the holiness of Christ. It's not going to lead people to godly sorrow that bears its way out in repentance. What if we do something crazy? We draw a crowd and we stand up and say, hey, sin is sinful. It's unacceptable to the Lord. So unacceptable that he sent his son that, that whoever believes to die in our place for our sins, to victoriously rise, to give us life, that whoever, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How, how different would that be? How different will it be if we pursue the making of disciples among the largest crowd that God gives us opportunity to? We make disciples among them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. That will make a difference. That's what we've been called to do, not just assemble a crowd. Of course our works will be ineffective until we stand out distinctly, not just as a religious group, but as a Christ-centered, gospel-proclaiming people. But the lies that we believe, they're always going to keep us from doing that. So we need to hear his truth. When a church or even a Christian begins to believe their own lies more than the truth of God's word, they will naturally begin to look like the society that surrounds them more than the Savior that saved them. If we're ever going to if, if we get stumbled up and tripped up in that, it will be because of the lies that we've begun to believe. And the only way out of that is the same way Laodicea gets out of it. Hear the truth and respond to the truth. And we, we see that in his call. And so, so we see his complaints. We, we see his comment. Well, we didn't see his commendations. We saw his complaints against the church. But then we see this gracious call. Buy what they need from him. Come and buy from me. Come to me, he says. And, and, he, and he, he, he presents to them things that they can buy for him that I think have spiritual or metaphorical value. But he also presents it in such a way because it's the very things that they're pursuing and saying about themselves. He says, hey, you think you're rich? Come buy gold from me. Come to me and get gold that's refined, a gold that is valuable, a gold that's eternal, that will never rust, rust or, or corrode, right? That, that, that it will always be of great value. It's got not any impurity in it. It's bought from him. He calls them to himself. He calls them to come and get from me, buy from me clothes, white robes, in contrast to the black wool that you wear, come and get white robes, in, indicative of, and, and we'll actually see this play out as we study the rest of Revelation that in, indicates holiness and righteousness of God's people who are clothed in white. These are the kind of clothes, he says, that cover our nakedness, that keep our shame from showing. Come and buy them from me. Come and buy from me ointment or salve that will give you sight. You think you're seeing, but you are deceived. Come and get from me. Buy from me. Now, there's a, I think there's a little tension here, because, or a little bit of a push here, because he's, he's saying to these people who say they're rich, who say they're prosperous, who say they got it all together, he's saying, come and buy it from me. And they're not going to have enough money. Do you have enough money to buy from him? Can you sell all that you have and buy from him? Any, a, a, a gift or a, a prize that's of eternal value? 
No. What are they going to be forced to do? When they show up at that, at that booth to buy, when they show up at this, at this bodega or this, this little uh, uh, shop to buy from him, and I want, I'm coming to get the gold, I, got, I come to buy the clothes, and I come to, come to get the ointment that enables me to see, he's going to say, hey, here's the price. And they're going to say, oh, I don't have it. Can you trust in me? It's yours. It's free. By faith, it costs you nothing. He's the one that paid the price. Come and get from him what they need. Buy it from him. And then we see, there's a famous verse. We see him turn then and call them to answer the knock at the door. Here I am standing at the door knocking. Anyone who opens it, I will come into him and eat with him and, and he with me. This is beautiful language. And, and I think, unfortunately, there's, there's a way in which this has been yet, like yanked out of its context and, and only ever applied to, uh, to evangelistic settings like, oh, I, I stand at the door and knock. And, and, and it's used in this idea that, that, oh, this is towards lost people. But the only way you get to that idea is if you take it out of the context of the book of Revelation that's written to the churches, that, to this letter that's written to Laodicea, a church that has a spirit, that has a lampstand, right? That has an angel that Jesus is speaking to. We, we must remember, we must remember that before that this is ever really evangelistic, or before it could even be applied evangelistically, it's, it, it falls in the lap of the church. This is a call to repentance for believers, for people who have followed Jesus. Now, I just want you to think about how that hits where we are. In Springfield, Missouri, in southwest Missouri, among a people whom many have already grown and had a spiritual experience, some, some experience of church in their past. Likely, you sit down with a group of people, and this, this is anecdotal. It's my experience. I don't know if everybody has the same experience. But oftentimes, when I'm evangelizing people, I'm dealing with the prayer they said as a child, the baptism, the aisle they walked, all of those things. I'm trying to walk through whether that was true or not or whether they really believed it or not. But now their lives don't reflect it at all. Before I can even evangelize them, i got to seek to discern if they've already been made a disciple that's just wayward like Laodicea. This is the place we live. And this is the... I'm, Jesus is pursuing his people. You see that? I'm standing at the door knocking. He's the one after them. He's the one... He's the one proactively moving. He's the one going. Before there's any response ever expected, we got to see that Jesus is the one moving. I don't think this is a, a, a verse that's devoid of evangelistic purpose because, I, I mean, ultimately, I think this is Jesus pursuing his people. But realistically, Jesus is after his people. He doesn't simply just let us fade off into the night and disappear as if we were never, if there was never any experience of him before. And here, I, I love this. You got to see this too because Jesus goes from talking to the church, like big, the whole church, to the individual within the church. 
He, he says it. Look at it. He says, um, oh, let me get here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He doesn't say if the church answers, if anyone. Like the hope of the Laodicean church and the members of that church was not if the whole church did it. Not if the whole church responded. The hope is his call on each and every person. If anyone hears my voice, every individual, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And then there's this beautiful fellowship that takes place. It's not just, I will eat with him. He doesn't stop there. He says, and he with me. And there's this beautiful allusion back to the idea of God being with his people. They will be my people and I will be their God. And becomes a two-way street of enjoyment and pleasure and joy in which we reside with God and he with us. And, and, it, and it bears fruit, and, and not bears fruit, it bears, bears witness to what's coming. So as we look through the rest of the letter of Revelation, we're going to see that this is what God is doing. Heaven is going to come down and God is going to be with his people and his people with God. And every individual who responds, Jesus promises these things. This is his commitment to the church. I'm going to do this, he says. Everyone who answers. But his commitments don't stop there. And this is what I think is most striking about this letter is if we had our way, we would look at a church that looks like Laodicea or a Christian that, that reminds us of Laodicea and we'd say, they don't have any, no, I'm done. Not only does Jesus make an invitation and give them an invitation to answer the door, he promises them some pretty amazing things. He disciplines those he loves. You see it? I discipline and reprove those whom I love. These aren't harsh words meant to beat people down. This reproval is an, is an exposing of sin. This reproval is a conviction of sin. It's a, it's a highlighting. Hey, this is wrong. But the discipline, he, he never, he meets us right where we are and he shows us what's wrong, but he never leaves us right where we are. He disciplines us like a parent disciplining their child, like a father disciplines his sons. He disciplines us, doesn't punish us. He, he trains and equips and he makes us able to live righteously. That's what he's doing. That's what he's committing. But then of all churches to hear the promise that he makes next, of all churches to get this promise, it has to be Laodicea. It is Laodicea. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He is going to give them authority. I, 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 I summarize this in this way. And I wanted to draw out some ideas with this. He's going to exalt those who humbly repent. He commits exaltation for any of those who humbly repent. See, their problem was the lies they believed, but those lies, it spread arrogance. It spread pride. We don't need anything. We're self-sufficient. We got this. We can take care of it on our own. It's going to require humility to come to Jesus and say, I don't got it. I can't do it. I'm not enough. I don't have it. I need you. I need everything I lack you have. Everything I have you've given to me. I love that we started this morning. Again, we don't 
plan these things, but Billy, starting this morning with a call to humility and recognizing ourselves in the light of who God really is, I, I, ending at this place, man, we're so quick to exalt ourselves, to stand self-sufficient. If we want to be exalted, it doesn't come through ourselves doing it. It, becomes, it comes through us being exalted by him. That's his promise to his people. J- James saying that he humbles those, or he exalts those who humble themselves. But more than that, this sharing of authority, this extension of authority, this giving of rulership and dominion, I think is actually hearkening again all the way back to Genesis. Where Adam and Eve were created to be priest kings, to exercise dominion, to rule over the face of the earth, and they failed. And they, 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 were, they, they were subservient and submitted under the lies of the devil, who has now exercised dominion with his lies since that time. And we even pretend like we can exercise dominion today. Oh, yeah, look at the buildings we built. Look at all the stuff we, we've done. We still believe we're exercising dominion. How much power do we really have? You really think you got power? What if the dollar crumbles tomorrow? Oh, wait, it's crumbling. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's start to rebuild it. How rich are you really? You got enough to buy your life? How much control do you really have over the circumstances of your life? How much protection can you actually offer to your children? How much say do you have in them being saved by the Lord forever and ever? But we built these buildings. Ah, come on. We painted these beautiful paintings. You took what was here and molded it into something, yes. And I believe God's given us the ability to do that. You think that's the dominion he's built us for? You think that's all it is? It's a lie that's deceived us. You want dominion? You want authority? You want the rulership? You want the priest kinghood that God created you for? Humble yourself before the Lord. He will one day exalt you and seat you on the throne next to him. That's dominion. That's authority. Not over one another because we're all going to have it. We're all going to be sitting there and then we're going to turn them and we're going to have these crowns of victory and we're going to say, you know what, we don't even know. Oh, these don't even belong to us here. They're yours. We're going to put them down at his feet. We're going to praise him for it. This is the work he does. Oh, man. And he offered it to people like Laodicea. And such were some of us. Such were all of us. The only difference between us and them is that we have continued in repentance. So continue and be zealous for repentance. Because this promise... This, this promise that he gave to Laodicea, the promise he gave to, to uh, Philadelphia, the promise he gave to Sardis, the promise he gave to Thyatira, the promise he gave to uh, Pergamum, the promise that he gave to Smyrna, the promise that he gave to Ephesus, those promises are ours, are ours in Christ. And how can we count on them? How can we be certain? Because he's the one who walks among the lampstands, who knows our works. He's the one who, with eyes like fire and a sword that comes out of his mouth, that fights on behalf of his people, that makes certain that we stay safe. He's the one that knows what's happening among us. He's the amen, the one in whom all of God's promises are yes. He is the faithful and true witness. His words are trustworthy.
worthy. So quit arguing and fighting and scrambling over scraps and stand up and own the authority and the power we have and proclaim it on high. Jesus is our king and in him all that come to him can be forgiven. Those who humble themselves before him will be exalted. Let's pray.